let's take our Bibles and let's head towards Revelation 21-22. <coughs> we've talked about the rapture. We've talked about the Bema Seat. We've talked about the tribulation. These are in sequence. Talked about the return of Jesus. We talked last week about the millennium. I enjoyed that one a lot. About what getting a perspective of the millennium. And what we're talking about to start this morning is we're going to talk about eternity and cover all of eternity in about 45 minutes. And so before we do that, let's talk about the next major event after all these things. What happens right before eternity? In Revelation chapter 20, you have in verses 11 through 15, you have some of the details that are given about what happens. If you take your Bibles and go to Revelation 20. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled. There was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those (coughs) things which were written in the books according to their works. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. The death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. They were judged every man. Why? According to their works. Why is that? And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire, and this is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Now here's what you've got. By Der- uh, let's just break it down real simply. Who exactly is doing the judging? According to scriptures, we've got a lot of passages that talk about God the Father who is the judge and that he is going to do the judgment at the end times. You have Psalms that he shall judge the world. You have Daniel, the ancient of days, sitting upon his throne and judgment is happening by him as the books were opened and set before him. You have in Hebrews, God the judge of all. And yet you have other passages of scripture that make it clear that it says that Jesus Christ is going to be the one who judges. It talks about and authority is given to him to execute judgment on also. We're in Acts 10. He which was ordained to of God to judge the quick and the dead. We have in Acts 17. By that man whom uh, it says he was ordained to do the judgment. And so we have multiple passage where it's Jesus Christ judging the quick and the dead. What, what is it? Is it God or is it Jesus Christ? And the point that some make is there's a real contradiction. There's no contradiction. God the Father is judging through the authority that he gives to the Son. And so the judgment day, when we talk about standing before God, we do. Because Jesus and God are one, and yet in the Trinity, we understand there's some uniqueness between them. But he's going to, there's a day where people are going to answer to God slash Jesus Christ, who are one and the same. And so John starts talking about this throne sitter, the one who's doing the judgment. And he mentions several things in this text, if you look at it. He talks about this man sitting on the throne with this being sitting on the throne. And by the way, 50 times in the book of Revelation, the throne of God, the throne of God. When you think about a throne, what does it automatically say to you? Okay, king, ruler, authority. And so we have this idea that there's this throne, but it's talked about being great, and it's also this white throne. So we're talking about purity, we're talking about majesty, we're talking about this great in the size of significance or size, that this is going to be the ultimate, the ultimate king, the ultimate uh, judgment that's taking place. And it says, heaven and earth flee away from them. Two possibilities of what that means. The idea is creation is totally destroyed, which by the way, it will be at that time. All the universe, the earth will be totally annihilated by fire uh, at that moment. And so it's the idea that they'll be moved away. But probably the other idea by saying that uh, there is this idea that everything flees away, there is without anything there. What does that mean about the people standing before God? If everything else has disappeared. Okay. Let me put it this way. 
You catch your kids doing something, or you, you think they're doing something. It gets real quiet in the other room, so you assume they're doing something. And you go in there, and when they hear your feet, then all of a sudden you hear them skedaddling to a different place. Okay, they're hiding because they probably were doing something. Okay, if everything flees from before God and it's just people, what does that say about those people who are standing before God? There's nowhere to run. There's just absolutely, the people are going to be standing there and they're going to be without anything but what they've done standing before the Lord God. And so he talks about it and then he mentions as you go through the judge to the people, who's involved? Are you going to be judged at this judgment? Okay, the, the point that he makes, he says that those who are judged, now in chapter 20, verse 6, he talked about all those who went into the kingdom, who were born again, who were saved, they were part of the first resurrection. This is now the group that's in the second resurrection. The first resurrection, which includes those who are raptured, and those who are resurrected before the kingdom and given bodies, it's, it's, not, um, it's not necessarily everybody at the same time, but it's everybody who was born again. They have already been resurrected. Who is being resurrected and judged at the second resurrection? It's going to be all the lost people. All the unsaved individuals from all of history, small and great, every single one of them. So it's all-encompassing. Everybody who lived all the way from the time of creation, all the way through the tribulation, all the way into the millennium, who did not get born again, this is their moment of resurrection. That is, they are going to get now the eternal body. A body that will live forever and ever and ever in the place that they have chosen to reside, by whether they accepted Christ or not. And so this is their moment of judgment. This is not your moment of judgment if you're born again. You won't, this is determining who is going to go into eternal heaven. And so you're already declared to have done that by being raptured, by being glorified, by being resurrected if you're born again. And so he's already dealt with us. We're already with him. This is now the resurrection of all those who have died. In other words, they get those who have been in what we call hell today, they're going to get out of hell for a little bit. This is that, that time where they'll get a reprieve, stand before God, and from here they will go into not hell as we know it, but what does the Bible say they go into? The lake of fire, which burns forever and ever. So they basically get out of the frying pan and end up in the fire, literally. And so he's very clear on this, of what's going to happen, that there's no escape. Nobody's going to be able to run, and none are going to say, well, I'll bypass this one. That's not the case. He talks about this judgment being for the, for the unsaved, and the judgment is real simple. The judgment is going to cover a couple different details. Verse 15, which we read, and I didn't pause that, but verse 15 says, Whosoever is not found written in the book of life. That is the book of all the saved people from all generations. Now, there's multiple passages. Some will, and we could discuss it, and I don't want to get into it in depth, but some might say, wait a minute. How does it mean where it says in the passage that their names are erased out of the book of life? How is that possible? Can somebody get saved and then their name be taken out? Can they lose their salvation? That would be inconsistent with Scripture. But there could be this strong possibility that the book of life contains the names of everyone for whom Jesus Christ died. That is, the names of everyone who has ever lived potentially. And when they have rejected Christ and their life on earth ended, their names are taken out. And so by the time that we have, at the time that this judgment takes place, 
You have all the saved who are listed and all the individuals who in the past have never gotten saved. They've already died. They've already experienced some of that hell for, for ages or for a short time. They're resurrected. They're given their eternal bodies. And now they're standing before him and their names aren't written in the book of life. So it's basically they're not born again. They're not individuals who are saved. But he goes on and he makes another comment. He says they're judged according to their works. Why does he bring up two items here that they're judged for? Why does he judge them for their works? Does that mean, and here's, the, here's what immediately some have suggested. Well, if we're judged according to our works, then that means our works determine whether or not we get to heaven or hell. Is that true biblically? No, okay? We are not saved. We are saved by grace, not according to the works which we have done. Okay, so then why is he judging works or men's deeds. Well, that's what it's going to get down to. Yeah, exactly. What he's going to do, and there's several, I think there's several reasons why he does this. Okay, which you, brother, you gave part of the answer there. Is God is looking and he's going to say, and I think what the judging the works does here is this. The judging of your works, of someone's works, is showing whether their faith is real or not. How do we know that? James chapter, James, in the book of James, it says, by their um, faith without Works is what? Okay. Uh, Matthew 5. Jesus says, by their works you shall... Okay. And so the works are going to prove whether or not. The works indicate to that individual as well. The, uh, the sense of, you know, this is, this is a justifiable verdict. Okay. Your works, you know, you're, you're being damned because of your unbelief. But your works also support that idea. Okay, your works also, you know, as we've mentioned this passage in Matthew 7, as far as the works, and then uh, it says, by their fruits you shall know them. There is also this idea that we don't want to forget. In the Bible, and I don't know how this works. I, I just don't understand this. Okay? But in the Bible, there are degrees of damnation. We know that because we read where Jesus said, Woe to Chorazin and Bethsaida. He says, for if the works that were done basically in you... Uh, in, in those in, in that were done in you, were done in Tyre and Sodom in days past, it would be more, you know, they would have responded. It shall be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What does that mean? There is some form of accountability, there is some form of judgment based upon an awareness and a knowledge of what they knew was right, but they rejected. We find that as well elsewhere. Beware of the scribes who's devour the widows' houses and pretense, they shall receive a greater damnation. We have as well another statement where he talks about in the parable those who um, rejected the master's rule and they killed his son, that they shall be beaten, those who reject in the future shall be beaten with many stripes, others with few who didn't understand and know totally. How it works that there is different degrees of heat, hot, punishment, I don't know. Nobody knows, by the way. But there's the indication that there's different degrees of punishment, just as there are different degrees of rewards in heaven based upon what people have invested in. So the individuals, the idea of judging their works is not to determine whether they go into heaven or hell. It's basically their names were not written in the book of life. But the works will verify it. The works will indicate it to them. The works will justify it. Now, the question that is interesting is what works exactly does God, re, does God say he'll look at at that moment? And there are several different instances in Scripture where he says, here are some of the things that are going to be judged at Judgment Day. 
what people are thinking, the secret thoughts in their minds, the secrets of their hearts, that he makes comment that Jesus Christ, there will be a time where there's going to be called into judgment how a man is thinking, what is in his thoughts. Man, our days, can you imagine? Aren't you glad as a believer some of your thoughts are under the blood and will never be brought up? For those individuals who are standing at this great white throne judgment, it will be brought up. Their thoughts. Also, we have indication in Scripture what people say. This is the text that comes that Jesus was preaching where he talks about all of a sudden there's going to be whatever was spoken is going to be revealed. It was going to be reckoning. There's going to be a judgment based on, okay, what was said. Even in the closets, even in the privacy of the home, God is going to bring into account what people have said. Man, days, aren't you glad that all of your words aren't going to be brought up? They're under the blood. He's, makes another, he makes another statement. You've got the thinking. You've got the, the things that are being said. You also have the indication that's found in scriptures <coughs> Excuse me, that God goes beyond this. Part of the works he brings up to those people is their deeds, what they exactly did, where he talks about their works. Every work will be brought into judgment. Okay, now, and again, this isn't to determine whether you go to heaven or hell because works never get us into heaven. What it's going to do is it's going to indicate the, the reality you rejected Christ. You've broken God's laws. You violated, let me just throw it out. There's many more, but you violated the Ten Commandments. You cannot stand there where people say this all the time. I think I'm good enough to get into heaven. Well, when their thoughts are brought up and when their works are brought up and when their words are brought up, that kind of, every one of us would just, we would shrink we would shrivel up and saying, I'm not that good. And so in that sense, the works are going to be evaluated, going to be brought up, going to be reminded. So those individuals are judged by it. And then what happens with that judgment, according to this text, it isn't like what you and I think legally. It isn't what we do in America. It's going to be a judgment where God is the judge and the jury, and there's no appeals. There's not going to be a, a deal. Nobody's going to flash a ring and get a special, you know, because symbol that they wear. Nobody's going to be able to pay money and get favoritism. There's going to be at this moment, there's going to be a judgment made. Now you say, but God is merciful. He is merciful. Now, justice and holiness is what's going to happen at this point. And God is going to, in holiness, he's going to mete out what is deserved at this point. You want a mercy? You want the mercy of God? Experience it now. You need to be born again. And so he makes all these judgments, and the result are the people are cast in the lake of fire. They join Antichrist, Satan, uh, and the devil, and that's where they'll be for all eternity. And so we can conclude and say, okay, what, what do we know about the great white throne judgment? How long, you know, what, what's that mean? It means a couple things for us, okay? This is not a myth. This is a reality. This is going to be some people's experienced reality. This could be some of your friends, your relatives' experienced reality if they don't get born again. And so it means that we have to remember that unsaved people aren't going to be able to hide from God. They can't hide behind preachers. They can't hide behind churches or denominations or certain deeds. They, it's going to be, is your name written in the book of life? Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? And is that proven? Is that shown? Is it genuine based upon how are you living? Do you show the reality of faith by your works? And so then he, we came, come to this point that we remind ourselves the only hope is Jesus Christ, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Okay, it's very, very clear. For you and I who are, who are born again, who know the truth, those of us who are genuinely saved because some point in our life, we need to remember that our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, the people we're going to see here at Christmas time, if they don't get saved, 
They are, they are going to face this judgment. We need to tell them. Nobody can, will get saved except they hear the gospel. They must hear, and how beautiful are feet of them that present the gospel. Now, the first, the first part that what we do is we start off by saying what we need to do is be praying for those individuals. We need to be holding them up before the Lord and saying, let's pray that they get born again. Let's ask the Lord to work in their hearts. And so we want to pray. We want to get out the gospel. And that includes some, some of the truths that we've already shared. And then we do our best to let them know about Jesus Christ. Now, here's where we go from there. Right after that judgment, there is going to be that heavenly situation in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. He spends much more time giving us details about the eternal heaven. It is not the same as the millennial kingdom. Similar, but much better and much different. We, you could go back and listen to what we said about the millennial kingdom. Um, in this heavenly kingdom, he describes it. And he gives us a basic overview. Start with me in Revelation chapter 21. He said, I saw a new heaven, new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there's no more sea. I saw John, and I, John, excuse me, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and shall be their God. By the way, look at verse 4. People immediately say, what about, you know, all tears are wiped away. This is the time, chronologically, where he says, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Why the tears? Could it be because we have seen loved ones, friends, cast into eternal hell? Okay, in sequence of time, that's a possibility. But he goes on and he says, or it could just be the idea that, okay, now I'm talking about from here on out, there is no, indie, there is no suffering, there is no pain, there is no any possibility, and so this is just pure joy is what he's getting at. And there shall be no more death, sorrow, crying, neither shall there be any for the former pain, for the former things are passed away. And he says in verse 5, I will make all things new. And he goes on and talks. And so taking just a real quick snapshot, talking about heaven, um, let's not be mistaken about this. There is a lot of information given about heaven in the Bible. However, at times there's a lot of things that happen in heaven that God doesn't want us to know. When the man who died and went into heaven, according to Paul's writings, in Second Chronicles, Second uh, Corinthians, excuse me, where he writes about, I knew a man who, whether in the spirit or in the body, I don't know, but he passed away, he went into heaven, whether in the spirit or in the body, and he saw things that were unspeakable. In other words, there were certain things that God chose not to reveal about heaven. There are certain, certain things that God has opted to say, I've given you enough information, this is somewhat of a mystery, and I don't want you to know everything about it at this point, which is fine with us. Okay, God has chosen to give us, an, uh, give us information, but he's given us enough. He's given us a lot of details about heaven, and if we put these details together, here's what we're going to end up with. We're going to end up knowing that one day in the future, this universe, this, this earth, the heavens as we know them, they're going to be destroyed completely. We know that this happens at, right before that eternal, well, in conjunction with the, lake of, uh, with the great white throne judgment. The universe is going to be destroyed by fire. Peter talks about this. Peter makes the comment, this is real global warming, folk. When the world is destroyed by fire, that the heavens pass away. And he's talking about this earth as we know it that has lived through all of creation, 
all of human history, the tribulation, and then was renovated for the millennium. When we get to the end of that time, the world is going to be annihilated. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be wiped out. All creation will flee before him. It's at that moment that the earth is destroyed by fire. And then what God does is God will end up making a new heaven, a new earth, a new universe. Okay, we don't have details of what that means. We don't know if that details of is there going to be a solar system similar to what we have. We don't know if we're going to be, you know, a, what, what number of planet or the only planet. We don't have those details. We can, we can guesstimate and speculate, but God never chose to give us all the details of what that universe will look like. But he says certain things will change. There's not going to be sea anymore as, as John understood it. And he gives John a little description of what this is going to be like. He talks about there's a combination of the spiritual heaven and the physical earth that is different than what we know today. Okay, um, we have we have the the spirit world. We we know there's a spirit world around us. We understand that there's angels. We understand that there's there's um, demonic forces. We understand that heaven above is not just the universe, but God's abode. In this new creation, there's going to be a blending in a special way of the earth and the heavens so that there is visibility, so there's interaction, uh, physical interaction, if you would. And this heaven, this new earth has a physical entity to it, an element to it, because we're going to have our physical bodies there. And so he talks about it. It's all new and it's all prepared in the sense that it'll fit our resurrection bodies where we will live there forever and ever. We also know this, that it'll be a place of unparalleled peace, joy, mercy, prosperity, fellowship with God. He mentions, if you look at the passages and take all the way through chapter 21, he mentions there's not going to be the tears, the death, the sorrow, the crying, any more pain. He mentions that God is going to be with men and dwell with them. God himself will dwell with them. So there's even an intensification of how that fellowship went during the millennium. The word that he uses here when he talks about the tabernacle of God is with men. He uses the word of tenting, that idea of God's dwelling. It's not just a temple where he visits or a temple where there's a presence. It's the idea that he is going to be living really near to people. And he's going to be there with them, uniquely from, from uh, what we've experienced up to this point. And so the concept is given in this text that God is going to be dwelling. God's going to be living next to us. He's going to be walking next to us. And you say, well, how is that going to be possible that man cannot survive and see God? We read that in the Old Testament. It's going to be different. We're going to be different. We're going to have those glorified bodies. And God's going to be dwelling with us. And it's going to be a totally unique time where there's going to be intimate, ultimate, just beyond our imagination, fellowship with God Almighty. <clears throat> that we, have, we have as well the idea that there's a capital city that's going to, <clears throat> excuse me, going to be provided. Now, this is the one we get the most detail about. In this section of Scripture, we are told that the capital city of the New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and it comes down to a place of earth so that there's going to be that dwelling place. And he talks about that when he goes into... Oh, we can jump down. Yeah, let's see. Let's jump down to about verse 9. One of the angels tells him to come up hither. And verse 2 mentioned the holy city coming down from heaven. But verse 9 starts the section of giving us more details. And he says, I want to show you something. The angel takes him up to a mountaintop. He's looking down from the mountaintop. And he sees this great city, verse 10, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven, having the glory of God. Her light was like unto the stone, most precious, even like... 
uh, jasper stone, clear, and he goes on and describes it. Now, this is the section where most of us get the concepts of that idea of the foundations, the walls, the pearly gates. It's in this whole this whole continuation of chapter 21 into chapter 22. That capital city called the New Jerusalem, he's going to mention it, he's going to give it a lot of description. There's more description of this detail in detail than any other spot in Scripture. So if you want to know what this heavenly home is going to be like, this is the text you want to be reading. And so he gives us some details about it. Let's do a little bit of dissecting. You can read it, and I can mention it here to keep it going. Okay, This is the city that is talked about in Hebrews where it says the saints were looking for it. That they were looking for this heavenly city, Abraham, New Testament saints. This is the city that God talks about that he is building, and Jesus Christ says, I go to prepare a place for you. So this is constructed by God himself. This is prepared for God's people that he is even at this point, preparing for you and me for that time that we'll be with him. And so when he talks about it, he says it's like a bride. He makes that comment in verse 2, that the city comes out of heaven adorned like a bride. Why would he do that? There's several possibilities, okay? The possibility is it's like a bride in the sense that a bride on her wedding day is, is really glamorous. By the way, let me throw this out to you, that in Bible days, in Jewish culture, which one of the groom or bride dressed up the fancier? It was the groom. It was the groom. So in a sense that, okay, is it just the idea that the bride was really decorated? That's a possibility. Or there's this idea that there's more to it. There are several different entities that are called the bride of God that are given in Scripture. Most of us, uh, right away we say, what, what group is called the bride of Christ? Okay. It's the church, those who are born again. They're not the only one given in Scripture. In Scripture, there's others, other entities. Okay? Israel is also called the bride of God in the Old Testament. As well, the church and the new city, the new Jerusalem, is called the bride of Christ. Why would he use that terminology? Okay? Let me throw something in. Not just the appearance, but if somebody takes to themselves a bride, what do they do for that person? What is that concept? What goes along with it? Provision? protection, provision, everything, everything, whatever was his becomes hers as well. And so I think there's more to it than just the appearance and the idea of, okay, here comes the bride down the aisle and everybody goes, ooh, ah, isn't that pretty? Okay. I think that's true, but in the sense that these different entities are called, and especially the one that's most often referred to as the bride of Christ, is New Testament believers, the church. The, uh, the idea seems to me that what this is, is God is saying intimacy, and God is saying protection, provision for all eternity. And by the way, in, in Bible, in Bible concept, how long are marriages lasting? In Bible concept, what is God's preference to be? Forever. For all, for all as long as you... Okay, now think about it. Here comes the bride, okay, in that concept that God is going to make this his commitment for how long? 
for eternity. Okay, so all those, those thoughts seem to come in here to say, okay, there's, there, there's going to be an element of a place, there's going to be an element of people, that they're going to be really, really close to him, that God is deeply, deeply devoted and committed to these individuals. And John is getting that sense of it and saying, this is going to be a lasting spot, a lasting place for the lasting relationship, and it's going to be one where there's intimacy, protection, and there's never going to be rejection. And they're never going to be able to, to separate from each other. So that, a lot of that concept, not just the appearance, seems to, in my mind, fit what he is talking about from a cultural point of view. He describes this as being the great city in the sense that the great city, I, I would guess I would say it in the sense that it's uh, great in its appearance. He says that, as he's describing it, he, he keeps on looking. If you look down through the text, like or as, like or as, like or as, because he doesn't know what words to use. It's beyond description. He's got to make these comparisons. And as he's talking, he says this great city, and he's, he mentions it, and some of the things that stand out about the greatness from John's perspective is the glory, is the brilliance. In fact, the words that are used here, where he talks about in verse 11, he says, her light he uses a word that is, uh, that is more expressive. And it's not, it is not just like this light. It's the idea that the, the light bearer, the idea that this brilliance, this, uh, this sense of, and it's the, it's the word that we get photo from, uh, photon, if I'm not, if I'm not uh, mistaken, is the ending of the word that's used in this text. The idea is that it's almost like as brilliant as a star. That, that jasper, which is a diamond, that jasper concept is that this thing is shining, and he talks about the glory of God shining in and out of it. It, it would be like taking, taking a diamond, taking a uh, crystal, uh, crystal of some sort, and then shooting a light through it, and it just scatters everywhere. And it's just brilliant, and it's just amplified in a great way. And he's saying that's what this city is like. John's looking at it, and he's amazed by the beauty, by the glory, by the majesty, by the brilliance of this. And he's saying, I, I, I'm going to try to describe it, but while I'm, while I'm kind of, you know, getting my eyes adjusted to the brilliance, here's what I know. But he not only talks about its brilliance being great in this way, but the size is just phenomenal. Look at the next couple of verses. When you, when you get into the text, he gives us the dimensions of it. He gives us the size of it. The size is truly amazing. It's 12,000 furlongs in every direction. It's either a cube or it's a pyramid. And when he starts talking about that, 12,000 furlongs means 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles is quite a big distance. If you take a city 1,500 miles square, and that its base is that big, and you put it in the United States, it covers a pretty good portion of the United States. So this city is massive. It is greater than anything. We think our cities are... Well, let's rephrase this. Let's take somebody living in 95 AD and let's plop them in the middle of New York City on New Year's Eve day, okay? And with all of the lights and the brilliance. And then let's take them up and give them a sky view of how big the city is. Somebody from 95 AD, would they say this is big? Right? Okay, they would, be, they, they would look at the skyscrapers and they would go, wow. Okay, John is looking at a city that he is going not just wow. That would, I'm, I'm just talking John seeing New York City. Put John into a sp- spot where he's seeing something that covers you know, a, good, a good third to a half of the United States. Take us in the sky and let us look at it and we would go, wow. We would be amazed. 
The city is phenomenal in its size. Just to give you a sense of it. And uh, if you were standing on, this is modern earth. Modern earth right now. What we know as earth. We don't know what the new earth would be like as far as size and shape. But if we were going to say, okay, I'm going to stand here in California. And I'm going to have somebody stand over in Jersey Coast. And we're going to look across towards you know, the west, the east. And we want to see a tower that we built in the middle of this. And so we're going to put a tower big enough that you can see from Jersey and from California. And because of the curvature, the tower has to be at least 300 miles high. Okay, 300-mile tower. Then on a clear day, you can see forever. You can see the top of this tower blinking. That's 300 miles. How tall does this city go? 1,500 miles. Yeah, yeah, I better believe it, brother. Absolutely. Okay, the tower, the city is phenomenal. In other words, how far away are we going to be able to see the city? But just basically, you know, whatever the distance may be, it's going, to, it's going to be phenomenal, just the size of this city. And so he talks about it, and if, if you say, wait a minute, this makes no sense. I study science. If you take, a, you take an object that big, that huge, and put it on earth, and the earth is circling, it's going to throw the earth off balance. Okay, it just can't work. Well, there's a couple of thoughts that I'll just throw at you. Okay, we don't know how big this new earth is, number one. Number two, we don't even know if this new earth needs to go around. Okay, we don't have, you know, it's a new creation. We don't know how anything will function in that sense that it has to have something that we are understanding because there's no need for sun, moon. It's going to be a totally different creation. And the centerpiece of gravity and the centerpiece of all life is no longer a sun, but the centerpiece of everything that's going to hold this together, keep it together, is going to be God there right with us. So what we have is this cube city. And uh, just and again, I don't know how... The, how, you know, how accurate in the sense of the division of the city. But let's just take a modern, a modern skyscraper and say we're building this thing up and we're going to put so many floors on it. And that gives us so many square feet or so much acreage. Let's take what they use in some of the modern building structures and let's say 1,500 miles and you're 22 to 25 feet for each floor and you're building it up and it's something that is, that is going up like a cube. Okay, and then we say, okay, we've got all these different levels, and it's huge, and it's massive. How many people could live in that city? If you take everybody on planet Earth right now, and you put them in there. By the way, not everybody on planet Earth is born again. But let's say everybody on planet Earth right now, and put them into this city, and give them a region to live in. That means three and a half people can have all of Lebanon County to themselves. Okay. Is there going to be room in this city? It's massive. Which, by the way, this just supports the idea is how many people does God want saved? Okay, he wants all. Okay, he's making this dwelling place so that the, cap- the capacity and the capabilities of providing and having... And this is just his one city. Okay, the, the city. There's going to be more to this creation that he has. And so he's making provisions for everybody. So when you talk about great, then you have the wall that's described in verses, look at 12 12 and 14. He talks about this wall that's around this city that is absolutely massive. He talks about the foundations, that each one of them are a separate level of stones or tier of stones, and that he's got the name of the apostles written. And so this 1,500 mile slabs of 12 different layers or 12 different steps, and one of them is all diamond. 
diamonds, and one of them is all gold, and one of them is all sapphire, and one of them is all, you know, what, and keeps on going. This is, this is not just a great city in the sense of size, but the majesty, the beauty. I mean, seriously, think about it. The streets are paved with gold. You know, no potholes. That's how, that's how gold will be by comparison. We value it so much. It's going to be so commonplace. In, the, in that city that it's just, you know, it's used for tar. You know, you use it for macadam. And so it's, it's just, it's a phenomenal spot. The 12 gates, you all know this. The gates, there's three on each side symmetrically. The idea that the city gates aren't ever closed. There's constant going in and going out of this city. Each one of the gates is made by a single pearl. It has the tribe of Israel written on it. Why the pearl, some ask and some suggest because they're not just a precious stone, but also because they're developed. They're made by the idea of, of a term of suffering, you know, that stone and, and the irritation it creates to the oyster and it's developed, that it's a reminder once again of that this was all put together by the suffering of Jesus Christ and what he provided for us. The materials we can talk about that John writes about the various gems and he gives a listing. The place is beautiful. The place is wonderful. The place is better than anything we can ever imagine here on planet earth and all of what we invest in and all of what we, we do in preparation to say everything we do pales in comparison to what Christ is giving to us for free without mortgage, without taxes. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Lord's good. The Lord's good in providing for all those things. Okay, now here's the question you have that I'm going to throw out to you. It talks about, implies all the way through this text, a transparency. Why is there a transparency through this kingdom? Why, if, it's, if we understand it right, why is it there's no need for walls that you can't see through anymore? Okay, possibilities, okay, is this. Nothing is going to hinder God's glory shining throughout this place. It's just going to be transparent. The glory of God is going to be radiated everywhere. There's no need to hide anything. We don't have anything to hide. Everything is going to be revealed. Everything is going to be known. There's not going to be secret sins. There's not something that you would say, okay, I don't want anything to know about, and I'm going to hide it on my phone, on my computer. None of that anymore. Okay, it's all gone. And part, and part of, to me, now I don't know about you, to me part of the great part of heaven isn't just the physical presence, it's the fact that my sin nature will be gone and I no longer have to battle that, okay? To me that is just phenomenal. Therefore we'll no longer have to seek uh, to, to keep anybody at a distance. There's going, to be a, uh, there's going to be a perfect fellowship in this city, okay? Now for some of you, you find that a real struggle because you're going, I'm really anxious to get to heaven, but do I have to spend the eternity with that relative? Okay, they will be changed. Okay, they will be changed. Oh, by the way, guess who else will be changed? Okay, so there are major distinctives. Now, here's something that's that we don't usually catch. There are certain things we're used to right now, or John was used to, that he says they're not going to be there, and they caught his attention. As he's describing this heaven, he says, "Hey, there's some things that aren't going to be there that I've really gotten used to." We mentioned some already back in verse four. Right? Look back in 21.4, where he's mentioned, I think I have the right verse, where he says, there's not going to be any more, okay, no more tears. What else is gone? Death, sorrow, crying, they're all gone. Okay, let's jump further in the text. Okay, so jump down into about verse 22 on. What else is gone? There are several things that he says aren't going to be there. <clears throat> there's no temple. What else is not there anymore? Keep on just, just fingering through the passage. Okay, the sun's going to be gone. What else? The moon's going to be gone. 
Okay, oceans. What else do you got that disappears that we're used to? Jump into chapter 22. You'll see a couple things mentioned there in the first few verses as well. Down about verse 4 or 5, if I'm not mistaken. Verse 3. No more curse. Anything else? No night. With, 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 there's something else that men don't have to employ anymore. What do we use to help provide light? Yeah, candles. He talks about in verse 5, there's no need of candle, okay, because it's, you know, there's just no need. So here, let's just stop. No need of candles means no more utility bills, okay? <laughs> that means no more phone calls from those guys trying to sell you, you know, MedEd or whatever, you know, their, their bills. So that'll be heavenly. Um, but all those things are gone. And he's, he's giving his, and, and John's perspective is, John is saying, okay, and by the way, some of these things we enjoy. I'm, I'm not saying the curse. But sometimes nighttime is enjoyable. Sometimes oceans are enjoyable. Sometimes a romantic candle is enjoyable. But he's saying, okay, the focuses are changing. Things are changing. Life is changing. And things that we know in this day, going to, there's going to be some great changes that are taking place. And everything f- from our understanding, okay, how is this going to be? How is it going to be in our family relationships? How is it going to, there's going to be some changes to that. doesn't mean it's going to be bad, but it's going to be things that are going to be improving and things that are better to the point that God says, this is what I'm providing. This is what I'm, I'm offering you. Is this place for how long? Forever and ever. Now, this thing is eternal. The most obvious thing that John says, and understand from John's perspective, the thing that caught his greatest attention was there's no temple. There's no temple. And he points it out a couple times. There's no temple. There's no temple. Now, remember from his perspective, and keep it from why this would catch his attention. Okay, there was a temple in Jerusalem before. For him as a Jew, is the temple important? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And in his lifetime, he saw the temple destroyed, and he predicted through the book of Revelation it would be rebuilt and taken over by Antichrist. And then in the millennium, there's a temple again. And now John is saying the one thing that, that has been there through all of the Jewish concept of a nation that as they were striving for is a temple. He says there's no temple. We have no temple whatsoever. Remember, in the millennium, there was a temple. There was a place of sacrifice. It was different in its setup, but it was still a place where there was a meeting spot with Jesus Christ and where he would rule and reign. Now there's nothing, okay, because he's with us, not in just one spot, but he's with us more intimately than ever before. And remember, remember this as well. Remember that most ancient cities, even today, our towns, there are worship centers. There are places that people go. And he's saying there isn't one. There isn't a place where they gather to worship. And so when it comes, he points it out that, that there was a temple in heaven. But there is no temple. Because, well, let's think, okay. Let's think. Why isn't there a, a spot? Why isn't that the case? Well, one, there isn't going to be any need. There's no need for sacrifice. There's no need for forgiveness. There's not going to be the offenses made. And so that, that major part of the temple of coming and getting forgiveness, it's done. It's over with. It's all been taken care of. God's intimacy with people is going to be so different that they don't have to go to meet him. He's going to be with us in a very intimate sense. That, that If we can make an analogy, and this is, this is a very limited analogy, do we have a much better opportunity for worship than the Jews in the Old Testament? Yeah, we do. We do. Okay. Because the temple of God is where? 
Right now, it's here. Okay, it's here. So you and I, we can pray, we can worship, we can do that anywhere. For the Jews, when they wanted to have a time of set worship, it involved location of a spot. You and I, we don't have a location of a spot. We have gatherings like this for community worship, and we can do them Anywhere. Yeah, we can do them anywhere. If we want to form together and say, okay, let's, let's form a church. I, one of the relatives, I, when we were first saved, and I was talking to one of my relatives and sharing, and she says, so you're going to tell me you can worship God out in that field? And I was, yeah, if we wanted to get a group of believers together, we could go, we could worship there. And if we wanted to form and make commitments to each other and, and organize the New Testament concept of a church, we could meet and have a spot anywhere we choose. Okay, and that's gonna that, that's and, and we are light years ahead of the Old Testament Jews in that regard. What he's talking about in this new heaven is light years ahead of what we experience. So it's hard for us to explain it or to understand it, just as it would be for the Jews to understand the concept that we this day don't have to go to a temple and make sacrifice. So we look and say, okay, we have this worship that is so advanced compared to, what, well, compared to what they had in the Old Testament. But the whole idea is that we don't have to have any other, any other day. You think about this. God in his wisdom set aside Sunday. What a brilliant thought that God had. Let's set aside the first day of the week because otherwise we get so busy, we get so preoccupied with good things. But they can, they can distract us to the point that all of a sudden we could get so busy that if we didn't set aside a time that God said you need to set aside, what could happen to all of us? We could get so preoccupied with stuff that we forget to take the time to do worship. I know that sounds weird, but in reality, right? Have you ever gotten so busy you forget to eat? Some of you are going, what? Yes. <laughs> really? Okay. That all of a sudden, it's gotten away. Have you, ever, have you ever gotten involved with a project and all of a sudden you look at the clock and go, hey, we, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. We didn't realize it had, you know, it was that late. And so God in this, in this wisdom in God's mind, just fabulous for us, set aside a time, commit yourselves and say, we're going to gather at a certain time and set aside time on a Sunday, the first day of the week, to give me some time to focus, to re be re-energized, good fellowship, rub shoulders, and do that church thing so that you can be getting ready for the coming week, on the first day of the week. Well, you do, I don't. Okay. Uh, so, so well, you, that yeah, whatever. The, uh, the idea is that we get together, we worship, and we, we spend time, and we think about what God has done, okay? Whatever length of time that we do. And so what we do with that in mind, we're moving forward, and there's so much wisdom. We don't have to have a set day in this heaven because we, we won't get so preoccupied with stuff. Worship is going to be such a... a a natural part of our thinking, much more than it is now, that it's hard to explain. Um, what are we going to do in this eternity? Okay, let's talk about what you're going to do in, in four minutes. Let's talk about what you're going to do for all eternity. Okay, we'll cover in four minutes what you're going to do forever and ever. Okay, some of you will thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly be blessed in your heart when you see this. We're going to eat. Okay, okay. Shady Maple, 24-7. No, okay. 
we're going to eat. We know that. That he's providing some type of nourishment. Why and what that is all about. Okay, the purposes. It's going to be different as far as sustenance. But we're going to eat. We're going to explore. It talks about in the text about bringing our honor before the Lord. And it's that concept that comes out of the Old Testament that we bring before the kings, the King Jesus, we bring before him things that we've expanded upon, things that we've discovered. It's going to be a whole new creation. Could there be expansion of knowledge and experience? Remember, we're not going to become God. We're not going to know everything immediately. Our minds will be enhanced in a glorified body, but we're still going to learn. We're still going to explore. We're still going to find out about this new, this new universe, this new creation that he has. So there's going to be developments to whatever degree. We know as well we're going to reign with him. So there's organization, there's going to be the idea that we're working together, and there is administration to the idea of supervising, even, even having charge over the uh, new creation. We know we're going to be serving him. That idea of service is two, of two things, working or worshiping. The word for, that's used here is used for both in the New Testament. That talks about our reasonable worship or service, his labors and or the idea of uh, falling down before him. We're going to be, the Old Testament talks about even beyond that forever and ever kingdom concept. There's going to be, there you go, brother, here comes the farming. I don't know if it's the cows, but it's going to be the building, the teaching, the learning, the uh, raising, you know, the animals. It's talk, you know, there's going to be expansion. It's not going to be a place, and let's, let's throw away this concept. When we get to heaven, what will we do? Will I, will I strum my, my harp all day on a cloud I'm sorry, guys. I'm, I'm, and this is my wicked thought. Okay? If I'm going to be on a cloud all day in one spot, I'm going to go nuts. Okay? I can't preach in one spot. Okay? So maybe that's my glorified body as I'm going to be positioned. I don't think heaven's boring. I think heaven's a place where there's busyness, activity, because God didn't, God in the very beginning when he made people, he made them to work and progress. What hindered that was... Sin. Sin didn't bring in work. Sin brought in toil and hardship. And so God, and, and by the way, is God a working being? Yes, he's, an, he's created. He is, an, he is a productive being in that sense. And so we're going to be busy. Here's, here's where some of you may be sitting. You're going, this is just too good to be true. Isn't it interesting that John wraps up the book and mentions it several times? Faithful, true, faithful, true, faithful, true. That this is so true. Remember how Jesus said, if it were not so? Okay, this is beyond our comprehension and belief. But that's why we go and say, that's, that this is God. This is God promising it to us. Now, the big question we end up with is this. Are you going to be there? Are you going to be there? It is up to you to make sure that you have accepted God's free gift of salvation. We're going to talk a little bit more about God and what he's offered. Let's get ready for our worship service.